Hey, everybody, welcome back to the JEDCast Dialogues with Changemakers. I am your host, the mayor of Claremont, California, and the chair of the Claremont Lincoln University MPA Advisory Council, Jed Liano. And with me today, as always, my co-host, Dr. Audrey Jordan. Audrey, how are you? Hey, Jed. And yes, I'm Audrey Jordan. I am the Jerry D. Campbell Professor and Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Specialist at Claremont Lincoln University. Yes, Jed, as always, so happy to be here with you today to get into another one of our fabulous conversations today with Sasha Renee Perez. Really excited to have Sasha on the show. You know, Sasha represents the up and coming next wave of leadership, young person, Renner, first generation college grad, a, a person who won her election in Alhambra not coming from the established political circles of power, comes to elected office, experiencing a unique experience of, of what young people are going through. She's a renter, a recent college grad, and getting elected office in, in Alhambra. Really excited to have her on the show. Audrey, tell me what you're looking forward to in this episode. Yeah, Jed, I, when I look on her wonderful webpage, I see a picture of her with her father and am reminded that she grew up here. This is a place where she has roots. That means a lot to her. And I just am so interested in hearing from her what that's like. I'm also just really interested. You know, one of the things that we talk about a lot in Southern California politics is the need for communities to address affordable housing and what that's like trying to make laws on that and to pass laws when you yourself are a renter facing the rising cost of, of housing the cost of housing is not keeping pace with wage, which is which right now are really stagnant. So really curious to hear her thoughts on that. To everybody who's listening in, thank you so much for joining us for an outstanding conversation. Coming up next, Alhambra City Council member, Sasha Renee Perez. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the JEDCast, Dialogues with Changemakers. And with me today, so excited, season two of the JEDCast, Council member from the city of Alhambra, Sasha Renee Perez. Sasha, great to have you with us. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Jed? We are fabulous, and we're so excited that you are on here. We have so many things to get to, so we're going to jump right to it. When you got elected, one of the first things that you tackled was the question of universal guaranteed income. And under your leadership, Alhambra joined a coalition to build support for this topic, and you incorporated this strategy into your own city's strategic plan. For a lot of people listening at home who don't have a lot of exposure to this issue, tell me how that came about. What was the genesis of getting that initiative started in Alhambra, and what's the issue all about? Yeah, so I first became a part of the Guaranteed Incomes Coalition. This is a coalition of mayors from all across the country that's being led by former Stockton Mayor Michael Tubbs. And this is really a program, a pilot program, so I want to emphasize that, that will be focusing on low-income communities. And what is happening is the Mayors for a Guaranteed Income Coalition is partnering with the Economic Security Project, and they are studying these pilot programs in real time to see if you were to provide, you know, folks who are low income with a guaranteed income, whether it's $500 or $1,000, how would they go about spending that money? 
And so former mayor of Stockton, Michael Tubbs, launched this program in Stockton, and the results of it were really interesting. I mean, he found that folks that were part of the pilot program actually ended up finding employment faster than those who were not a part of the pilot program. And I think it helped to disprove many of the myths that we have around you know, government handouts. And so what we're trying to do now is get more of these pilot programs going all across the nation so that we have more data to prove that this kind of system works and it's an effective means to reduce and eradicate poverty. Sasha, you're in Alhambra, a suburban city in the outskirts of Los Angeles. What is that political dialogue like when you start talking about guaranteed income in the suburbs of LA Tell me about the politics of that. Tell me about the first conversations. And our listeners at home can't see it. You got a huge smile on your face. So I would love for the contents of that smile to come out. Give it to me. What was that like talking about with your stakeholders in your community? Well, I will be very honest with you. I've definitely been called a communist before, a socialist before. And it is fine. It is it is part of you know what comes with talking about these issues with educating the community. You know, I, I want to say, although I have had folks that are very much against the idea, an overwhelming number of residents in the community, they actually just have more questions than anything and really want to understand how something like this works. And I, you know, I really have to give a, a shout out and a thanks to folks like, you know, Andrew Yang, who may not be somebody that I agree with 100% politically, but I think he did an excellent job with really helping to frame, you know, for him, it was a bit of a different program, a universal basic income, and really making that a priority in his presidential campaign and bringing it to the national spotlight. So a lot of the responses I get from residents are really more questions and folks really wanting to better understand this. And now, you know, with President Biden rolling out the new child tax credit program that we see that's going to be cutting child poverty in half, you know, I think we have some examples that we can continue to point to to say, you know, these programs actually work and they exist right now in our current government structures. We just don't call them a guaranteed income. Sasha, for our next uh, topic, I'm going to throw it to my co-host, Dr. Audrey Jordan, faculty at Claremont Lincoln. Audrey, take it away. Yeah, Sasha, I'm just so intrigued about this part of the conversation and your fierce advocacy. I know on a related note around living wage advocacy, you were championing or still are championing something called the Hero Pay Ordinance. And I understand what that is, but for our viewers, will you help them understand how this is about supporting people who put their lives on the front line, often people who are low-income people of color that aren't getting a living wage at all? Yeah, sure, absolutely. And, and thank you. Thank you for the question, Audrey. You know, when we first pushed for this Hero Pay Ordinance, this was actually back in January, right, when we were coming out of, you know, a very rough winter with the pandemic, right? We saw our cases skyrocketing. And, you know, I think many folks you know, realized and understood that it was our grocery store workers and our pharmacy store workers that were putting their lives out on the line every day to ensure that our families were being fed, to ensure, you know, that we were able to continue on with our lives. And I think you saw online many social media posts kind of acknowledging that, right? And we were calling these folks heroes. But unfortunately, even though we were calling these folks heroes, 
we were not paying them like we would a hero. And they were still receiving the same pay as they were previously. And even, you know, in some cases, workers were having their hours cut, right? Many workers weren't being provided with the proper PPE. And so I felt like it was very necessary for us to honor that work by paying them a $5 wage increase. And so, you know, we put that forth in January. I like to jokingly say that we were not the first city to pass it. We were just the city that took the longest to actually come to a decision. It took us about four months to take a vote. And, you know, I think a large part of that reason was because it took a lot of time for me to educate my council and give them all the information that they needed in order to feel confident in making this decision. Alhambra has long been a very conservative city. As you know, Jed mentioned earlier, we are in the middle of suburbia, right outside of the city of LA. And so we haven't really had these kinds of conversations about, you know, paying workers fair wages and, you know, income inequality. And so it took some time for us to get folks up to speed, but I'm really, really proud of the fact that we passed it. And, you know, I, I even had a friend from UFCW tell me that when others in labor heard that Alhambra passed this ordinance, someone said, are you sure, Alhambra? Did you misread? <laughs> Did you misread the press release? <laughs> well, that's quite a victory. And so very soon, those folks will start feeling a little bit of the love, it sounds like. Yeah. Sasha, you are a perfect encapsulation of the next generation of change makers. And you know, when you walk into city councils, when you walk into city halls, there aren't people your age there. Why is that? And what can we do to turn that around? I mean, I think there's, there's so many reasons why that is, right? I mean, I think a part of it is that, simply put, you know, folks that are my age rarely have the time, the money, or the resources to step into these sorts of positions. About two and a half, maybe three months before I launched my campaign back in 2019, my boyfriend was actually laid off and we were not sure how we were going to pay the rent if he did not find a new job. And that is very much, you know, my economic reality. I'm a renter, you know, I live with another roommate as well. And we need, you know, all three of us in order to pay rent here and in this household. And I think that's the reality for so many other people that are my age. And so, you know, running for office, right, we're, and Jeb, you know this, it's not like we are getting paid some sort of, you know, lavish pay. You know, this is very much, you know, a, a volunteer role, something, you know, you do as truly in public service. And that's, it's challenging. It's challenging as a young person to step into such a role where you know you're going to be committing so much of your time. And that time is not necessarily going to be paid 100%. Right. And it's so interesting in your answer. One of the things that you brought up was the fact that you're a renter. There's no question that on city councils, not just the age representation, but there's also class representation. City councils typically are made up of homeowners, business owners, executives, executive level management, people in, at that level in their career. It rarely has younger people who are paying rent. That, that is a very rare thing throughout city councils, which is a perfect segue into my favorite topic, housing. So let's get right to the easy stuff. Uh, we're going we're gonna to get right to housing. One of the immediate things that you did was you pushed for an inclusionary housing ordinance in your town. For those of you not familiar with, with inclusionary housing ordinances, 
They are city laws that require market rate developments to include a certain percentage of affordable housing units in any market rate housing development. What did that fight teach you about the politics of housing in Southern California? Well, I mean, a lot. You know, I actually pushed for the IHO before I was on council. And I, I do think I do credit that to a lot of a big part of the reason why I had such a big coalition of folks that were supporting me when I was campaigning. It was one of the major policies that I worked on. And we worked in coalition you know, with so many different residents, and I think a lot of unlikely allies in the community. And, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful and want to acknowledge to the Everyone In campaign that's located out here in the SGV, and particularly Teresa Eilers, who's just a really good friend of mine. And Teresa just did just such an incredible job of making presentations to our community to better educate them about why it was so important for us to have an inclusionary housing ordinance and you know why it could be a game changer for our community and so she began making these presentations to democratic clubs you know to our local organizations and really helped to win over a number of people and so that coalition is what ended up coming out in support of this i mean I want to say we probably had about 50 people show up to a meeting, which is quite a lot, you know, for a small council like ours. But I, I think the way that we went about framing the narrative around this issue that this was, you know, about making sure that not just, you know, low income people could have, you know, quality housing, but that low income people that currently live here but also have access to housing. We have a lot of density in Alhambra, a lot of multi-family households, multi-generational households. And that's because we do not have a lot of housing stock. And in the past, you know, housing that we have built has been very unaffordable. And I think a lot of community members recognize that and acknowledge that. And so explaining to them what an IHO could do and the possibilities that were available, I think um, got many people excited once they had enough information. You know, going back to, to your anecdote being a renter, at the end of 2019, the California legislature adopts the rent control measure, also the no-fault eviction measure, essentially banning price gouging, making sure that people can only be evicted for cause. But you, you're living it. You're a renter in your town. What can cities, especially small cities, do beyond that which has been adopted by the state law to protect their renters? And, and I guess a deeper question is, how do they get that done politically when the population of renters don't formulate a formidable political block? I think that's been one of the biggest questions for myself is figuring out, number one, how to organize right, this community. We are a majority renter city, and most cities are. 62% of our residents are renters, and that's just based off of the last available data. I'm sure you know once we have more data, especially from the census, I expect that number to go up. It's been hard to reach out to folks and get them engaged because, you know, oftentimes these folks are, you know, working multiple jobs, trying to make ends meet. I've talked to many folks that have told me I want to go out to council meetings, but I have to take care of my kids. And I think that's the reality for, for most people that are renters. You know, some of the things that I've tried to push for, and I've really done a lot of coalition building around these efforts are for us to have a just cause eviction ordinance here in Alhambra, we do not have anything on the books. And so if you are 
forced to leave your home due to no fault of your own, you are not provided any sort of relocation assistance. And I found many families and met many families while, while I was door knocking that were being illegally evicted from their homes. And, you know, I had to connect them to resources. I had one case in which the landlord shut off electricity and shut off water to the home in order to try to drive out the tenants. Um, and I had to contact the county health department because that is a health violation. So I think, you know, passing some of these policies like a just cause eviction ordinance, rent stabilization ordinance, I think we need to have things in place that go beyond just the current emergency ordinances we have in place as a result of the pandemic. And on top of that, cities need to do a better job of actually reaching out to renters and educating them about what their rights are. I was doing a lot of that work in real time as I was door knocking and talking with people one-on-one, -on -one, but we can't rely on Facebook or you know Instagram for people to receive information. We need to get out there and physically give information to people in order for them to understand the laws that are protecting them. You know, Sasha, obviously Alhambra not immune from any of the existing new data out there that that homelessness is on the rise. A lot of times when smaller cities try to take on the, the challenge of homelessness, there's reticence to offer creative solutions, to find new ways to address the problem. One of the things that always frustrates me about homelessness is I feel like whenever in local government we're talking about it, we're always reading from the same like policy or position paper from like 2000. You know, we're using 20 year old ideas of shelter, you know. So I'd like to hear, do you have anything that you think we need to be trying? Is there any innovation that you think that maybe no one's ever done before, but it's worth a shot? The crisis is so acute that opportunities and attempts at innovation can't be just dismissed. What do you see on the horizon that, that can be different and game-changing? One of the things that I'm, I'm really proud of Alhambra for doing is we hired three social workers right before the pandemic happened so that we could begin providing direct homeless services uh, to those that are you know, homeless or even those that are facing mental health crises. And I think that that's been so, so critical to uh, much of the outreach that we've been doing. We refer to them as our home team. They've really been an important asset to, you know, to really provide an alternative right, to police so that we can deal with that in a humane way. For me, this is a very personal issue. You know, part of the reason why I ran was because back prior to 2019, my cousin passed away. My cousin was homeless for about 10 years. And when he passed away, he passed away because he was sheltering in a public restroom. And, you know, to, have, to lose someone so tragically like that was very painful for me, especially having worked in policy for so many years, I felt, a tremendous sense of guilt, like I had not done enough. And, you know, I had to go through my own process of grieving and come to the realization that it was my job to step into positions like this here at the local level to make sure that we had humane and compassionate policies around, you know, taking care of people like this. And I think we need more folks, you know, like myself that really understand that in these elected leadership positions. I feel like especially here in Los Angeles, it feels like we are at war right now over how to deal with homelessness. And oftentimes the conversations, they really break my heart more than anything because there's so much 
ugly demonization that happens towards a, a group of folks that I feel like the public really does, does not understand that the many challenges that those that are homeless face. Sasha, let's uh, switch gears here. And I want to take it over to sustainability and climate change. You know, everybody in politics says they want to do something about climate change, but very few people actually do it. And one of the things that you have made a priority is for Alhambra to adopt a city climate action plan. So tell me what that looks like. And how is that different from what you hear about when people talk about larger platforms on a more macro level, like Green New Deal? Tell me what you think that that can include and incorporate, and how does it relate to those other platforms? So I think for every city, this looks a little bit different, right? For the city of El Campra, the climate issue and the environmental issue that really plagues us the most are really our air quality issues. Alhambra is located right at the end of the 710 freeway, and we have the 10 freeway that also intersects right at the, at the end of our city. And so a lot of our air quality issues are tied to the fact that we are a very car-centric community. There is very limited access to metro stops. There's very limited access to public transportation. Um, one of the things that the council prioritized previously before the pandemic happened was actually looking at improving our public transportation system. And then unfortunately, because the pandemic happened, we saw ridership dramatically drop. So we weren't able to do that research and run that data. And so for us as a city, I think a lot of what we're looking at is exploring more active transportation options, right? And alternatives to alternatives to driving a car and really encouraging folks to get out there either by bike or on a bus in order to get around the city. And it's going to be very challenging, right? We're talking about changing an entire culture of our community. But I really think that for us, that is our number one environmental issue that we are going to need to address. And it, it is the air quality issue. And it is so tied to the car centricness of our community. You already started answering my next question before I even asked it. I love it. You're like, we are totally on the same page here. You know, one of the biggest challenges in building an infrastructure for the future is marrying climate policy to housing policy and transportation policy to climate policy. And in Southern California, we have exactly what you described, this chicken or the egg problem. The metro numbers don't lie. They have data on this. In a lot of communities in Southern California that are not immediately accessible to downtown LA, ridership is low. It's bad. And, and so then that creates a challenge of how do you build an infrastructure and fund a public transportation infrastructure when right now ridership is low? And we're describing creating new modalities of where people live and how people will get around, but, but we're not there yet. And the biggest challenge you described is attitude. It's just car-centric. We accept things the way they are. And so what are small things that we can do in small communities to change people's attitudes, not the overall budget of a major transportation agency, not the major housing plan of 19 cities in one region, but the attitude of one person in one small community? What can we encourage them to do to undo this feeling of stuck that we are this car-centric generation? 
I think some of the, the cool things that I've seen folks in other communities do, and even here, you know, here in Alhambra is starting up these like biking groups where, you know, they'll just go ahead and bike across like different parts of the SGV. So really, truly getting folks out of their car, right? Like let's actually experience what it is like to be a bike rider in this community. My transportation commissioner, who also works in transportation policy, his name is Chris Bertini, he's absolutely phenomenal. He had asked me about a month ago, he said, I want you to just walk with me across the city. He's like, you know, come to my house. He's like, we're going to walk 100% of the way. And I haven't done that since I was in high school, but it was, it was such an experience. And he took me to certain parts of the community where we don't have crosswalks right, where it is intimidating to cross the street and places where we have had folks pass away and, you know, really physically standing there in that space and, and looking at what the infrastructure issue is, whether it's a lack of a stop sign or we need a roundabout or whatever it may be. And it, it was so eye-opening. And so, I mean, it sounds so silly and so basic, but get outside and walk. We joke between myself and some other um, young organizers and I that um, you know, most of our, most local city councils, the council members haven't even taken the bus in their community, right? And I think that's the first question like a, a, an elected leader should ask themselves, when is the last time I took the bus in my city? And what's that experience like for bus riders? Because that's important. It's important to actually understand what that's like and what that experience is like for, for others in the city. Thank you for that. You know, we have gone in so many outstanding directions. And before I move on to my finishing question, Audrey, how are we doing? Is there anything you wanted to ask? You know, I guess I just want to come back and ask you if you could elaborate a bit more, Sasha, on a point you made earlier where you were talking about how friend and colleague of yours really broke down the process, the policies to help folks understand how they needed to see the possibilities for housing. And it just struck me that this is a really important way for our students at COU to understand what public leadership is about. When you're engaging your constituencies and you want them to be an active constituency, they've got to be helped sometimes to understand the lay of the land. So I don't know if you can elaborate a little bit more on that, but that was such a key point. Absolutely. I think, you know, engaging with the public and really providing that public education, I, I personally believe that that is half the job of, you know, my role as a council member is to make sure that I'm providing, I'm over providing information so that that people have just as much of an understanding as I do. And, you know, I think oftentimes we discount folks that are maybe in opposition to the things that we're fighting for because we just assume, well, that person is this way and they'll never agree. But in reality, what needs to happen is you just need to sit down with this person and have coffee and break some bread and, you know, really have a discussion about the issue and, you know, provide them with your reasoning and understand where they're coming from. And, you know, I, I learned over time in my eight months now being in this role that that's really the secret sauce to so much of this work. And, you know, I, I have a colleague, for example, who, who voted on Hero Pay, who many folks were shocked 
that he voted in support of zero pay. And I really think that that was due in large part to, you know, residents reaching out to him and to just simply sitting down and having a conversation with him about why this is so important to so many of us in the community. And I think sometimes people just need to hear that. And, you know, we shouldn't discount anyone. And maybe, you know, often I joke with my staff and with my colleagues that maybe I'm overly optimistic, but I think I have to be in order to like continue doing this work is that I really believe that oftentimes people vote a certain way or don't vote a certain way simply because they, they don't have as much enough information in order to make the, the correct decision. And if we just provide them with a little more, then we can get them there. So that's what, that's what keeps driving me. And, you know, I, I keep trying and I will keep trying until I'm blue in the face to, to help people to, to see what I see. Thank you so much. So Sasha, before we wrap up here, this is kind of how I like to close all my interviews. We live in and we work in an environment of distinct political realities. If you want to get something done, you got to build coalitions. You got to get people to compromise. You have to recognize what people want and they have different political views than you. But if you could suspend all of that just for five minutes if you could just imagine right now that you could pass one law, one ordinance, one regulation, one rule that you would really want to get done and you didn't need anyone's permission, compromise, or agreement to do so, what would it be? Oh my goodness. <laughs> just one? Um, oh gosh. Yeah, see, the, the, the hard part is just one because like when I think of it, it's like 15. But yeah, yeah. I'm going to ask you to pick one, right? Well, what would that be? Don't pick one. Pick as many as you want and tell me what you would get done. Let's let's go there. I mean, I think for me, it would be <laughs> it would be a bunch of housing stuff, right? Obviously, for me being a renter, you know, that is top priority for me. So like rent stabilization ordinance, just cause eviction ordinance, both of those things would be amazing. I would love to see our IHO be even higher than what it is, go beyond the 15%. And I would, you know, I would, I'd also love for us to, <laughs> for us to look into, you know, creating more density in certain parts of the city. You know, I think especially around areas that are surrounding schools, you know, surrounding parks. I mean, I think that those are just ideal locations for families to live. And I, I really think that that is how, that's how we go towards, you know, creating possibilities, you know, for those families so they can continue to live in our communities. I love it. Before I send this off here, Sasha, you've worked on a lot of really exciting things. You will continue to work on a lot of really exciting things coming up here in the future. Tell me what's on the horizon. What's up next and where can people find you? So folks can find me at SashaReneePerez.com. All of my social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, it's all at SashaReneePerez. That's Renee with R-E-N-E-E, so three E's. And in terms of what's next, the Guaranteed Income Pilot Program is something that's going to be coming down the pipeline. We're going to be fighting to get some of the $35 million that's on the table uh, with the governor's office. And we are beginning to talk about this just cause eviction ordinance and the rent stabilization ordinance will be coming up right after that. So it, it's an exciting time. There, there's lots of cool things on the horizon. So if you live in Alhambra, please participate. Reach out to me. We need you. Um, we need more progressives that are that are engaging. I love it. And as always, a real pleasure 
to all of our listeners at home. Thank you for joining us of the Jedcast season two. It is exciting as always to have a conversation with an energetic and enthusiastic young change maker, but perhaps none more energetic than the council member from the city of Alhambra. Today's guest, Sasha Renee Perez. Sasha, what a pleasure. Thank you for being on with us today. Thank you, Sasha. Thank you. Audrey, what an outstanding interview with Sasha Renee Perez. Uh, Just there's so many things about that interview that stand out about why it's outstanding. Love to hear from you what you you took away from that conversation. Yeah, one of the things that just blew me away, Jed, is, is the recognition that the power of these young people who are stepping out into leadership And, you know, we heard Sasha talk a little bit about the struggle. I mean, she couldn't pay her rent, her boyfriend had gotten laid off, but still she decided to run and build a constituency. And so what I take away from that is all kinds of encouragement for other young people, people of color to get out there because there's a sort of proximity. There's a, you know, I'm fighting for myself. Uh, and not just a constituency. And so, you know, there's this urgency of now that we don't see in the old white guys who are disconnected from the constituencies they represent. And that came through loudly and clearly. Just big ups to Sasha for having that courage and representing so well, so fiercely. You know, the funny thing about this interview, it's ironic on so many levels. She's so energetic, enthusiastic, um, passionate, and the energy of her youth exudes in all of her answers. But she also, despite being in in just a short time in office, she also shows a wisdom to this job that is frankly quite rare. Even in my town, people who've been involved in politics for more than 30 or 40 years, they don't sit down and, and talk to people they disagree with. They, you know, just kind of work the phones and distort and talk trash about people without ever actually like getting the facts or trying to engage or trying to find common ground. But Sasha's doing that and she's committed to that. You know, one of my favorite answers she gave was that I'm committed to no matter what someone's opinion is, still trying to make sure they have a lot of information and to the point of it being overkill. And, And I think there's something beautiful about that because- deep down, you can tell there's no, cyn- there's no cynicism there. She wants people to come together and find solutions. And believes that when people have information and they can understand the, the game, they can be a powerful voices for themselves. That's she right. She believes that. Yeah. That's right. And so uh, I'm so excited to kick off season two of the Jedcast. What an outstanding dialogue with another outstanding young change maker. To all of you listening at home, in the car, on the train, on the bus, on your way to work, on your way home, thank you again for joining us. We'll see you next time on the Jedcast. 